Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Hello, and welcome to our next edition of our WCAPS podcast uh, series. I'm very happy to have with me today Laura Coupe, who I've known for a while now and is actually uh, one of our young ambassador leaders for the WCAPS uh, organization. So she has actually done a podcast uh, interview for us uh, here at WCAPS. And now I have the honor of actually having her uh, being interviewed. Um, so I'm really happy to be doing this and uh, happy to share with you some of Laura's background and some of the things that she's doing and those things she's interested in. So Laura, um, how are you? How are you doing? Good. How are you, Bonnie? Happy Friday. Yeah. Happy Friday to you. And Laura, <laughs> Laura and I were just talking about how, how much we look forward to having a relaxing weekend. Um, so Laura, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your very interesting background. Sure. So thank you again, Bonnie, for having me on the, on the podcast and sharing my story. So in terms of my background, so again, my name is Laura Coupe, and I'm currently a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation, where I focus a lot on uh, defense, homeland security, and State Department related issues. And before that, I worked in the Obama administration as a special assistant uh, in the Office of International Engagement, where I worked on European affairs. And uh, before that, I also spent some time, um, so before being in the Office of Internet of European Affairs, I also did get to do a six-month detail at the White House at the Office of Presidential Personnel. And then before that, I also started out um, in the Office of the Secretary, where I managed his briefing book, which was, a, which was basically my, my foot in, in the door uh, when it came to starting my career in national security. And I've always had an interest in national security and foreign policy because of my background. I, my family is originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and my mother and father studied in Germany, so that's where they got their um, undergraduate masters and PhDs and I was born in the city of Aachen and Aachen is in northwest Germany and it is um, the home of uh, one of Germany's top engineering schools so my dad's an engineer and the other interesting thing is Aachen is where Charlemagne the Great is buried so Charlemagne is the uh, considered to be the father of Europe because he united Europe for the first time um, in the in the you know, in the middle medieval era. And so I've always had strong ties to Germany and Luxembourg as well, because my dad, after he finished his PhD, he ended up working for General Motors in Luxembourg, which is a small country between Germany, France, and Belgium. And uh, so that's where I lived until I was nine years old. And then General Motors brought my family uh, to Michigan. So we first were in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is on the west side of the state, and then ended up in Clarkston, which is about an hour north of Detroit and about 30 minutes south of, of, of Flint, Michigan. So my family has moved around 
quite a bit. And because of that, clearly, I always tell people that I do foreign policy and national security in my head every day. And, um, and then those interests also manifested professionally, where I've worked on Europe um, for like more extensively, but I also have an interest in Africa as well. And right after law school, before I joined the administration, um, I did a fellowship with Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's the ranking member on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where she's the um, subcommittee leader of the Africa uh, subcommittee. So that, so I've I've done quite a bit, even though you know I'm on the younger end, but I've really tried my best to um, you know get as many interesting experiences as possible to ensure that I'm successful in this field. Yes, and you and you and you make a good point. I mean, even though you're part of our Young Ambassadors program, you obviously have a lot of great experience um, under your belt, which is a, which is actually really good. And I think it's good to have the experience uh, with some of our other uh, younger uh, uh, people. And you're obviously a, a role model to them. Um, now let's go back a bit and talk about Luxembourg. I mean, I, I think you're the first person I might have told this to you when I met you. First person I think I met from Luxembourg, um, and it's one of the few countries I have not visited in Europe, and I definitely want to uh, go there. I always seem to pass by it for some reason. Um, and say a little bit about that, and you know, how many were there other people of color uh, in Luxembourg uh, when you grew up there? Sure. So Luxembourg is a very it's it's a small country, so it's a little smaller than Rhode Island. And uh, the population is a little under 600,000 people. So it's, it's a pretty small country, but about half of its population is actually consists of foreigners. And so because, again, uh, Belgium, France, and Germany are its neighbors, there are a lot of folks that live, are citizens of those countries, but then they commute to Luxembourg and leave. So it's kind of... It's, it kind of would be similar to if D.C. was a country, you know, folks from Maryland and Virginia commute in, but they also commute out. But of course, of course, they're also native Luxembourgers and, and uh, that, of course, are from there as well. And in terms of it as a country, it's one of the wealthiest countries um, per cap, you know, when it comes to the GDP per capita. Uh, it's also... Um, it's called the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. So Luxembourg has is a representative democracy, but it has a constitutional monarch. So it has a Grand Duke as um, the monarch. So that's a very unique uh, thing about Luxembourg. And then the other thing is that it has three official languages, German, French, and Luxembourgish. So I, I know how to speak all three of those languages because of that. And then Luxembourg as a country also is very involved in the EU. It was a founding member of that. Um, and there, the European Court of Justice, for example, is uh, located in Luxembourg City. So Luxembourg plays an important role in uh, European institutions and, of course, is a member of organizations like NATO and the UN. So it, it has, I think it is a very influential country given um, how small it is in terms of size and population. And it's, and it's a beautiful country. So I definitely love growing up there and I encourage anyone to visit who has the chance. 
And also say a bit about whether there were other people of color there when you were growing up. Oh, in terms of other people of color? No, not really. So I always tell people that my, my parents are revolutionaries across the board because even for them to have gone to Germany, so my dad left Congo in 1974 when he was 19 years old and didn't know any German and he had to go through language immersion and uh, and whatnot so it's always I always admire them for the courage they had to leave um, the Congo behind but in terms of people of color there were not that many so it, outside of you know na- you know people who are from Luxembourg so Luxembourgers um, the largest um, Immigrant communities were Portuguese. So the Portuguese came to Luxembourg to be guest workers and help rebuild Luxembourg after World War II because, of course, there was a great deal of destruction. And then along with the Portuguese came Cape Verdeans. And so Cape Verde is an island off the west coast of Africa. Um, But they also, and they're former Portuguese colonies. So, So in terms of people of color or you know ethnic minorities the portuguese were the largest and then in terms of uh non-europeans um it was definitely cape verdeans uh african immigrants were not there were not many uh, in luxembourg there are more now i I went to luxembourg recently to visit my family who uh, i have family members that live there now but growing up there were uh, not many um so i was definitely the only, our family was the only African, um, well, sub-Saharan African immigrant um, family in our village that I grew up in. And then, um, oh, but actually, never mind. There were also a couple of Cape Verdeans, I forgot. So there were Cape Verdeans, but there were not a lot of us at all. And uh, I, that definitely did make an impact. And I always tell people that when it came to, you know, having role models, uh, we didn't really have any in terms of when you are a black young child growing up in Europe, especially in the in the 1990s. So most of my role models or folks, professionals that I saw on TV were African-Americans because we watched a lot of American TV shows. So it was through the through shows like the Cosby show or the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or Different World or Family Matters that I really got to see black professionals besides my own parents because there is not, there is no representation of, um, of black people and of, you know, folks with uh, migrant backgrounds on European television period. It has improved more recently, but if you did see somebody uh, or someone of color on television in Europe, it was more likely that they were an entertainer or an athlete if they were actually, you know, from Europe. Other than that, Black America was basic. Black America, in terms of what it represented, was more so um, my uh, my example of, of Black achievement besides my parents. Great, and it sounds like with the with the with the background that you had, you you must be very adaptable to different environments um, because you've had you know you've moved around and. And so I'm sure that that's that's helped you in terms of your adapting to different situations. No, definitely. I I I think having been in Luxembourg, where you basically have to learn three languages to communicate, uh, you know, every day. I think that's definitely made my brain very adaptable to just switching a language, as, as well as you know, being 
um, you know, a person of color or an immigrant, you gotta, you have to learn the language of the society that you move to. So um, it's very, na- it comes very natural to me. And then I also forgot to mention my introduction. I went to University of Michigan for undergrad and for law school. And uh, a great thing that I loved about having gone uh, to, you know, to Michigan was it was a very diverse school and you got to meet people from across the country and the world. And given that it is such a large university, you basically have to fend for yourself and adapt very quickly. So I also attribute um, my education at Michigan for being able to adapt. But it is very important. It has been very important, I think, essential to uh, my success thus far that I've been able to adapt. And, and I think the good thing about having moved around is you try to find ways that you can connect to individuals in some way. So I would say that does come easier to me because I have moved around. Great. And, and one other thing, you mentioned the three languages, and um, I, I like the term Luxembourger. <laughs> <laughs> but what is what does the Luxembourg language sound like? Is it more German or more French, or how would you describe it? Right. So this becomes a touchy subject, especially for people of you know who are in Luxembourg. So mm-hmm. it is a German. It's a Germanic language. So I would say it resembles German a lot. But then you also see influence from French, and then um, also. The Netherlands is not far away either. So you definitely feel influence from um, those languages as well. But the Luxembourgish people are proud people and they they have their own language, even though some folks joke that, you know, it's a dialect or so. But I I definitely um, I would describe it a language that's very close to German. So, uh, and, and being that there were so few uh, people of color there, was it challenging growing up in Luxembourg in that respect? That's a very good, that's a very good question. So, I think it definitely was challenging in ways, and, and I think that's something that Europe, a lot of European countries have to come to terms with now, as their countries are also becoming more diverse. So, I think, you know, generally speaking, everybody was kind and nice, but there definitely, you know, there, there was racism and um, I may not have felt it so much as a child, but then as I got older and we moved to America, I, I believe I, I became more aware of it, but I did notice, um, and it may not have been in Luxembourg so much because I also have family uh, in Belgium and France as well, which have larger Black population, but, um, you know, I would say there are a lot of stereotypes about, you know, about Africans and immigrants, and they weren't, they weren't very PC, I would say, in the 90s. I think they've developed, a, you know, a better sensitivity around that um, now that, again, especially Luxembourg has become a lot more diverse. I, I definitely noticed when I was back there. So, no, I think, you know, the racism and stereotypes about black people and immigrants, that was very normal and very casual. And that was hard to, to deal with at times. Um, but uh, I, I would say it probably had slightly improved, but I would say my major critique now of countries like France or Luxembourg or Germany is that now that their countries have become more diverse is the biggest question now is, is is their economic mobility. So now that these folks have lived in these countries for a long time, 
Are they getting access to better jobs and opportunities now that they've really fully integrated and have gone to the schools and universities there? And because of the reality that I had mentioned to you, my family decided to stay in the United States because, um, so when my dad, when we first came to the U.S., we were only supposed to be here for three years and go back, but um, thankful, so GM allowed my dad to extend his assignment. And a big reason why was my dad realized that as a, for his children, uh, there are more opportunities in America for black people than in Europe. And that's why we decided to stay. Hmm. Great. So this, there's a lot, of, I, I want to get back to this issue about Europe. Um, so I know you wrote about it as well. And I, I think that's obviously an issue that you think a lot about. Um, so I definitely want to get back to that. Um, now you mentioned that, you know, you had a, because of your background and, and travel and, and living in Luxembourg and everything, you had a, a, an interest in foreign policy. Um, how, what, how would you describe that interest when, you, when it first started? Was it, you know, I, just an interest in learning about different countries and, and the policies of the different countries or do you, or how did that, how did that interest start? When did that interest start? Sure. For me, it always started as a kid. So I just always liked learning about history and politics. So I loved Nelson Mandela. I would do all my, <laughs> all my projects about him and just any other political leaders that I thought were very interesting. I always watched the news with my parents when I was younger in, you know, growing up in Europe and in America. So when I was growing up in Europe, for example, um, the war in the Balkans was breaking out or so I would hear ter I would see Mar Madeleine Albright on TV and I would see Bill Clinton on TV. I would see Kofi Annan on TV. So it was just something that was a, that I've always had an interest in. Even though my parents are in the STEM field, we always watched a lot of news. And then also around that time, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So in 1997, it was then the form it was Zaire and it changed its name to the Democratic Republic of Congo. So even in 1997, when I was you know nine years old, I followed things that were happening in in the Congo. And so I've always just had a really in, had a, always had an interest in that. And then in college, I also did a study abroad in Germany at a think tank. And in law school, I worked at a migration NGO in London. So I always wanted to figure out how can I utilize my unique background to help um, bring solutions to big global problems. So I guess I've just always been uh, a problem solver of sorts. So I figured that I, I had a very unique background, I've had unique background and perspectives and I wanted to figure out how can I maybe help bring peace in the Congo or how can I, in the, in the transatlantic context, how can we help migrants in Europe integrate better? So those, that's how I've always, how I've approached it. I've, I kind of knew I had this unique background in language skills and I want to fig and I wanted to be in a career where I could really utilize that to solve big global problems. Great. Now, now let's, let's shift a little bit and um, let's talk about what you're doing now. So uh, share what you're, where, where you work now and some of the, some of the exciting things you're doing right now. Sure. So I work at the RAND Corporation, which is a global public policy think tank, which is our offices are actually in, in Arlington, but we're in the D.C. area. So RAND really 
um, basically looks at big problems that are facing the world today. And I've worked mostly worked on projects related to uh, homeland security issues, as well as uh, projects related to counterterrorism, um, as well as personnel and workforce issues facing the Air Force. So I've been able to work on a lot of interesting emerging issues. And yeah, so like at RAND, I've been able to utilize my legal research skills, being a lawyer like you, Bonnie, and then also using my policy background, having been on the Hill and in at the Department of Homeland Security to help inform the, the important research that RAND does. So that's what I do on, on my day job. And then I'm also um, the transatlantic security expert co-leader with the Truman National Security Project, which is a professional organization I'm a part of. I'm also a part of a year-long project with the American Institute for uh, German and Con Contemporary Studies, looking at issues facing Germany and the U.S. as part of their German and American Young Leaders Program, where I'm part of a working group that's looking at uh, foreign policy and domestic issues. And then, of course, I'm a part of WCAPS's uh, Young Ambassadors Program. And the final thing that I'm also working on is with other young uh, Congolese American professionals. So we're trying to organize a Congolese Diaspora Impact Summit where we're trying to gather resources and basically organize a business competition where we're, um, where we're basically allowing folks who have unique business ideas to pitch them and, and win a prize. So I can definitely um, share links on the WCAPS website about the CDIS effort. We're definitely looking for folks that could sponsor us, but those are some uh, things that I'm a part of. Well, that's exciting. You're, you're doing quite a bit and, uh, you know, definitely, you know, what folks who are listening to, to definitely look into, um, you know, the Congolese thing that you're doing. And do you want to share uh, uh, any information about that? Sure. So basically, yeah, yeah. So what we're trying to do is, so I mentioned the just so this would likely take place in New York. And the, the reason why we wanted to have a competition that's focused on that is because right now there's the policy or the political environment around uh, what's happening in the DRC is very difficult, especially if you live on the outside in terms of trying to bring attention to what's going on uh, in the country. Of Things have not been going well for a long time. And so many of us are trying to figure out in this environment, how can we still make an impact? So the summit will uh, be very structured and focused on the business aspect in, uh, in the three to four sectors. So education, philanthropy, healthcare, and this general, generally again, business air, um, issues or business opportunities because the political area is a little bit more sticky and stagnant. So we're just, so we were just trying to think of areas where we could make an impact um, and also think about unique and innovative solutions to make an impact on the ground because right now politically things have been stagnant. So there were presidential elections that were supposed to take place in 2016, which did not happen. And the U.S. has been vocal about um, the current president basically being in violation of the DRC's constitution, and he has not left. So 
there are supposed to be elections taking place, I believe, this year or next year. But right now, it's not looking too bright. So we're just trying to think of ways as a collective of young, as young Congolese American uh, millennials in the U.S. And, and, and we were thinking about ways that we could make an impact. And this is how we thought we could. Great. That sounds great. Um, and also, um, I'm kind of I'm moving around my, my notes here. I'm just I'm following, I'm following the, uh, the, 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 the conversation. Um, say a little bit about um, wh why you think WCAPS is important uh, right now and uh, some of the things that, that the young ambassadors are, are thinking of doing. Yeah, so I think WCAPS is very important because now I've been able to be in, you know, in D.C. for a little more than five years and, and get a better sense of how the city works. And I, I believe it is more important than ever that we have folks who come from communities that have very unique perspectives and insights in the foreign policy and national security establishment. We are the frontline communities that experience, you know, when things like our government isn't working for us or if there are environmental issues like in Flint, which is not too far from where I grew up, um, are happening. And we have very unique insights domestically. Why not use that insight abroad? Or, or there are people like myself who have immigrant backgrounds. Why don't we capitalize more on individuals with, you know, with ties to other parts of the world? I personally think we've been underutilized. And I think WCAPS has been a great venue in which we've been able to identify women of color who are working in the peace and security space in a spectra, on a huge spectrum and who have very diverse experiences. So that's why I definitely think um, WCAP is important. And then as a young ambassador, I think it's more important than ever to get young folks engaged in, in this issue area, because if we don't have folks coming up behind us, then, you know, this work could, could potentially be for not. So I think it is important to, you know, of course, expose young people to opportunities in this area and then also support those that are already in the pipeline and to ensure that they're successful. Great. Thanks for that. And um, what I'd like to do now actually is to go back to um, some of the things that we were looking, we were talking about before. For particularly um, just talking a little bit more about um, some of the challenges in Europe now in terms of, you know, the increased, uh, you know, migration and some of the challenges from your perspective uh, and how some countries like France or even Luxembourg or Germany, or whatever, are, are facing in terms of, um, um, you know, incorporating or I don't, whatever the best word might be, some of the some of the people who are who are who are there now who are you know uh, from Africa or release or or wherever. Just some of your thoughts on that. When it comes to that issue area, there, I clearly have a lot of thoughts, but I think the biggest issue that's facing a lot of Western Europe is thinking about you know when it comes to issues like the migra migration crisis coming from the Middle East, which was at its peak in 2015 with refugees from Syria, as well as huge migration waves coming from Sub-Saharan Sub Africa to the Mediterranean, was thinking about what are the push and pull factors that are drawing people to Europe now. 
And a lot of that is instability in those areas where those people are coming from. And I think a big issue or something that um, Western Europe has to think about is how are they going to address those push and pull factors, especially because in the in Germany they they absorbed the most, uh, and now it's creating a lot of social upheaval because the native German population is afraid that most a lot of these migrants or and refugees who tend to come from um, Muslim countries won't integrate into German society. So those, so in addition to those push and pull factors, they have to have discourse around identity. Is Germany or is France going to be seen as a, are they going to be seen as countries of migration or diversity or, or are they, do they see themselves as white nations? I think those are debates that they have to wrestle with. So they're not like the United States, which has adopted and accepted its identity as a country of, um, you know, of, of immigration. Some people here didn't have a choice in coming here, but, you know, at least it's a country that has wrestled with it, has tried to wrestle with its history uh, and, and its darker parts, whereas I feel like the Europeans haven't done that yet. And in addition to those new migrants that have come more recently, then there are people like from my parents' generation who, are, who, who have been there for multiple generations. They are from the former colonies and they've tried to integrate, but they still face marginalization because they don't have economic power or political power. So on that front, that's a very, that again, like I said, will require a wrestling around identity and also maybe recognizing Europe's colonial past. So um, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, finally talked about France's, um, France's engagement in Algeria, which was very violent. And he, at least, he acknowledged it was violent so, and that France, def, just that, that wasn't a, a you know, proud moment in France's history. And I feel like having more discussions around those touchy t- subjects is going to be important moving forward. Also in France, there in particular, there it is illegal to collect data on race because in, according to French Republican ideals, everybody's equal and any mention of race or difference on that level is considered taboo. So for in France, for example, black people are, black people and, and, and other racial and ethnic minorities may, are are marginalized because there's no data on how many there are. This is the similar situation in Germany as well because of the Holocaust. And it's the same reason, besides the Republican ideals I'd mentioned in France, because of the legacy of the Holocaust, mentioning terminology like race is a taboo. And so that's why another reason why in Germany, people of color, including black people who are very visible are are marginalized because they don't ha- there's no data on how many there are um, and as, and then there also was a UN report that talked about how black people in Germany are at the bottom rung of society and that they don't have very good prospects in terms of economic and social mobility so it, i would say it is multifaceted because they have communities that have been there for a little longer and then now they have 
new migrants coming as well. And I don't think they have fully reckoned or thought of, um, thought about those, yeah, these different forces. And then I think a big part of that will be them trying to figure out what their identity is. You know, is Germany going to be more comfortable calling itself a country of migration following up now in the aftermath of the migration crisis? But then I think another interesting aspect um, is when it comes to migration, what is the U.S. or Europe supposed to do when you have people coming from very poor countries moving, uh, trying to escape that and move to Europe, especially when it comes with the migration from Africa, they are from the former colonies. Does Europe have a responsibility to be more engaged on that front? So those are very difficult questions to think about, but I think a big step in that is being mindful of the fact that they're Societies are not exclusively French or German or Luxembourgish anymore. Their countries are becoming more diverse. And I think in some ways, the U.S. could be a great uh, partner in trying to help them figure out how they maybe want to address these issues. The U.S. isn't perfect. But like I said, having been on both sides of the Atlantic, I think the United States does a much better job at least starting the conversation. And the fact that an organization like WCAPS exists is speaks to the testament of the progress that has happened in the U.S. thanks to things like the civil rights movement. For example, WCAP probably could not exist in France or Germany or Luxembourg because they would say that it was exclusive. So I think it's, it's, we have very interesting times ahead, but I think the U.S. in terms of different organizations like the NAACP in the U.S. or WCAP could provide great examples to folks of color in Europe who, who want to make advancements professionally or on a civil rights front. Thanks, that's really interesting. So there's, so there's no ability, let's say, in France and Germany for an organization to be established um, like, like WCAPS because it would indicate that there's some differences or it would be exclusive. Um, so essentially there's no real that limits the vehicles that people of color can really reach out to in order to deal with some of these issues. Right. And the UK is better because, again, the UK is a little different in terms of, again, they're a lot more similar to the US in terms of, you know, our legal history or, you know, in terms of common law. And then UK also is more, I would say, has just done, I mean, there's a lot that could be talked about why the UK is different. But at least in the UK, there is a category called BAME, so Black, Asian, and Minority um, minority Ethnic Groups. So at least the UK, at least they have some type of uh, category that recognizes people of color, whereas in on continental Europe, it's, it's a lot more, it's still a taboo. For example, I think in Paris, there were some women of color who wanted to have like a Black women's hair expo and they weren't granted a permit because it was considered exclusive because white women, white people technically were could not join so it is like you said it is difficult and um there was a people of african descent week at the european parliament in may where they gathered um uh, they gathered leaders 
of political leaders in Europe who are black and they serve in, you know, the in European parliaments and institutions. They brought them there. Social um, activists were there as well as civil society and NGOs. So they, that was actually the first forum where they talked about policy issues uh, impacting black people specifically, but of course this was applicable to other minority groups where they, I, be, I believe that gathering was the beginning of a space where those conversations can at least start, at least at a EU level, and hopefully the EU member states can start taking the topic more seriously in terms of the issues uh, that, especially the racism that Black people in Europe face. But like you mentioned, the, the spaces are, are few. And I, I also wonder, I mean, and, and this is pure speculation, of course, but I also wonder, um, you know, if, if US, how U.S. politics right now may be impacting some of that. It may not be impacting at all, but I just wonder, I mean, do, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the current environment has emboldened folks to exhibit their, you know, their uh, their more nationalist views, and there and there also has been, you know, there have been articles on exchanges between far right people in the U.S. and Europe. So I would say that the current environment has emboldened people on the far right, and I, I personally believe that is more important than ever that anybody who has the power to speak up against, you know. Uh, ag to speak up against that rise uh, has to do so. So I know in Germany, Angela Merkel has been very vocal about, for example, there was a riot in the city of Chemnitz, which is in Eastern Europe. And there was a riot of um, neo-Nazis that basically started a riot in response to a German man who got stabbed by a migrant. And so she did say that very vocally and directly that that is unacceptable in Germany. So I think it is more important than ever that people in power speak out against advances that have been made uh, by far right. But the hard part in the European context is that these parties are winning seats in the parliament. And so that's so they're being leg legitimized politically by people who are frustrated. So I I honestly don't know what the answer is, but I think if if anything, we should amplify voices in the political realm or you know NGOs or civil rights organizations that are doing work against you know that rise. I they definitely need support and be amplified. Or in a transatlantic context, maybe we should find ways in which folks can collaborate and and figure out ways to to you know to do this globally. Yeah, it's interesting because they, there's a limit to what they can do to really mobilize and organize. And I mean, they can always mobilize, but in terms of having an organization to help, you know, they're kind of strangled in the sense that they are not really able to do that. Um, but there's other ways of, of uh, making your point. Um, so anyway, this is great. I think I'm just going to probably end by asking you, what is, what is your passion? My passion is bringing people together and, uh, and finding unique ways to do that. So I always like to bring people together by talking about culture and history 
and language. So I think being able to do that will hopefully make the world a, a better place. So the way that I like to bring people together, like I mentioned, those are the vehicles we're doing so, but um, like writing about them or sharing music or sharing uh, fun. I like, I always like to have fun, but finding fun ways to connect people and then hopefully get them to think about unique ways in which we can make the world world better. Um, so I guess it's two prongs. So bring people together, but then also trying to make the world a, a better place. And I hope that I can do that by using my unique skill sets with my, you know, my nerdiness and quirkiness and, and hopefully uh, make a dent in doing so. Great. And, and is there, is there a, a URL, a, a website or a, a place where folks can go if they want to learn more about the Congolese work you're doing? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so let me just make sure I have the right. So if you can type in Congolese, diasporaimpactsummit.com. So that is our current landing page. And then we'll add more details as we get closer to the final date. And what was the date again for the summit? So there is no date yet. So we're mm -hmm. looking at the fall of uh, 2019. And we'll, we'll add more details as uh, things get more solidified. And then I can also be followed on Twitter at Laura underscore Coupe, last name is K-U-P-E. Great. And of course, we'll, we'll keep posting on, uh, on WCAP's information and, and ways to get to, to information for the summit uh, as it progresses. But anyway, first, I do want to thank you, uh, first of all, Laura, for doing this. Um, and second of all, for being part of the WCAP's Young Ambassadors Program. Um, and you have some really exciting things going on right now um, in other parts of uh, your life and everything. So that's great. And uh, just want to thank everyone for listening to what I think is another great episode here uh, for Deborah Cap's podcast. So thanks again, Laura. And uh, we'll, we'll see everyone next time. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's WCAPS.org.